Guys, it all started with this, a banana for my very next guest on the show, a crisis management professional with experiences all the way from Australia to the UK in corporate communications, public relations, and is actually a broadcast journalist by background. Please welcome my very next guest, Kate Rollins. Today we have Kate. Welcome. Hi. Hi. How are you today? Very good. Thanks. How are you? Yeah, fine. Thanks. Thank you for coming all the way here to the pod. We are very excited to interview her. Um, But you guys, you know the drill. As always, I've got the mood book in my hand and I'm going to ask you how you're feeling before the interview. one. Okay, and tell the audience what that means. Wired. Wired. I mean, I I feel like we're going to be talking a lot of things today. Yeah. Start some of the questions I think we're going to talk about is me very, very young. Very young. Yeah. Um, And like to where I am now, and that's kind of delving into the mind, I suppose, quite a bit. So I'm quite, I am excited, but I think, you know, reflecting a lot and talking about experiences um, whilst working, got a lot of things on the mind. I feel like I feel like wired. She's wired. So guys, <laughs> we're going to put that behind there, and then we will ask Kate um, how she is feeling after the. It was like after. a cashier at um, like a convenience store, grocery store back in Australia. Oh, wow. um, so I grew up in a small country town. Um, and it was called IGA, which I think okay. stands for Independent Grocers Australia. Okay. I think. Pretty sure that's what it stands for. Um, so the equivalent of like a co-op. Okay. Um, and it was my after-school jobs. I think I did like two afternoons there a week, and then on a Saturday and a Sunday, a few hour, four-hour shifts sort of thing. Um, and I did that pretty much right up until um, I finished. It's hard to say about schooling because I know it's different to yeah. Australia to here, but until what I would call year ten, so like yeah. the compulsory part of education. Yeah. Um, and then my final two years of school, I moved and I worked at a news agency, um, selling like lotto tickets and newspapers. And I suppose that's where all the media stuff really started. So my first touch with media was selling newspapers at the age. You get into this industry. Okay. So first off, I studied journalism and criminology at uni because okay. I thought I always wanted to be a journalist. Wow. Um, and that, like all through school, I thought that was that's where I was going in life, and that's what I really wanted to do. Yeah. Um, And I worked in TV and radio for about a year. And then I had a day where I realized that that really wasn't the life for me. And it probably wasn't going to make me happy long term. Yeah. Um, And I had like a bit of a moment of like, oh, what will I do? Because, you know, I like media. I like communications. I like working with people. Mm -hmm. Um, So I decided to make the move into kind of the PR side of communications. So I took a job as a government press officer um, (laughs) working for, which was great. And I loved it. Um, the Department of Agriculture in Queensland, back in my home state in Australia. Um, And I worked there for a couple of years, and I mainly focused on the plant and biosecurity with crisis or resilience. Um, All started with this, a banana. (laughs) A banana? A banana. (laughs) Okay. Um, So uh, when I was working for the Department of Agriculture, my account that I managed was um, in the biosecurity field for plants um, and I also did pest animals as well uh, but partway through when I was working at that department Panama Tropical Race 4 was found um, oh. which is a disease that affects banana plants um, and it's a soil-borne disease uh, where basically it kind of travels up the root of a plant 
uh, a banana plant and then the tree kind of you know slowly dies but it's carried through the water in the soil so it can spread um, quite easily so that kind of I worked on that response for the first few months after it was found Um, and it was first found about an hour and a half drive from where I grew up oh my gosh and whilst working on the response I met um and came in contact with people that I you know known my whole life and had went to school with uh that were impacted by the result of this disease being found um and I suppose that kind of really sparked in me because I really cared about Mm -hmm. some of the people that were closely involved in the response and I really enjoyed the fast-paced nature of uh working on an incident um, but also how imperative and important comms is and to Mm -hmm. make sure it's done well So that was my first brush with it. And when I went back to my normal government press officer job after working on that response, I felt it just didn't feel the same. I felt like I found something I really, really liked. And I think I always knew I wanted to move to the UK for a couple of years to try something new, living in a new place. Industry. Have you faced any challenges because of that? I wouldn't say any big challenges, no. Uh, I suppose reflecting, I have been into quite a few meetings where I notice that I am the only one okay or I am maybe one of two or three women in a room of 40 or more people um which just which doesn't necessarily matter and I've never quite felt that really has impacted me or impacted the way I work or how I feel but I do notice it Mm um which I think actually over time I think you know that that will change if I'm honest going through like some networking recently I'm meeting more and more women in this industry that I didn't even know were really working in there I think in my mind I thought that there was less women in the resilience industry than there probably is okay if I'm honest um but I think it's really encouraging that I'm meeting more and more people that are involved and at what a senior level. are some of the key tips for crisis management professionals I think the main thing that I've learned is that you constantly have to be learning so you constantly need to be involved in networks of people from different industries but in the same sort of sector so for example we met at the resilience yeah kind of networking event yeah and that's a little bit different to crisis comms of what I specialize in but actually when we had discussions we realized that we've got more things in common than not yeah um and by having those conversations and building those relationships professionally in networks, we actually can learn a lot from each other. Yeah. Um, and you get to go and listen to guest speakers mm-hmm. uh, who talk about, you know, what they're doing and what their yeah. area of expertise is and the things that they've noticed that have changed. Um, so I think that would be one piece of advice is yeah. to A, join a network, but B, be open to looking for other networks that are popping up or are available um, to constantly be around like-minded people that might be a little bit different that you yeah. can learn from. Um, and I suppose secondary to that is constantly reading. So Twitter is great for this because you can follow a lots of people and then see who they're following and what they're talking about. Um, and then you can start to follow, you know, like-minded people, yeah. publications that, you know, publish on Twitter or discussions and threads that are happening. Um, and constantly learning and keeping up to date with things that are new because particularly in the digital world everything changes so much yeah so you know three years ago would be completely different to what we're doing now and how people have handled an incident or what they would do you know as common practice and best practice today would be completely different 
Um, so if you're not learning or keeping up to date with things, then you're going yeah. to be a little bit left behind. Quite right. Um, so I think that's the main thing that's is, yeah, thing, networks yeah. and reading. And reading. We love those things. Yeah. So here on the pod. <laughs> okay, so just picking up on that part, mm-hmm. um, when you say that things have changed from the way we deal with prices comms mm. three, four years ago to now, yeah. well, are you able to give us an example of what that might be and, and to the audience mm-hmm. who might not know much about it? Um, so I think actually what it really boils down to is our expectations and perception of social media and the way that we use it okay. has changed in that time. Yeah. So going back, you know, four or five years ago, social media was, you know, a nice to have place where, you know, you might share, collaborate ideas with people that are probably in a close network of mm-hmm. friends or colleagues. Um, and you might follow, you know, certain businesses for marketing purposes because you really liked them. Yeah. And from a business perspective, it was a really great marketing platform where you could put out lots of things mm-hmm. about, you know, glossy pictures mm-hmm. and all that sort of thing about, you know, kind of push out of your message. Mm-hmm. Whereas now, I think that's changed and it's a lot more two-way. So yeah. people now expect as a business for your social channels to be exactly the same, if not more efficient than a call centre. So if I... Uh, flying on an airline and it's cancelled and I need assistance, I should be able to tweet them and get a response back. You know, if it's not within an hour, that's it's going to get to a point where that doesn't meet my expectations. Yeah. Um, and that's not just me, that's, that's anybody. That we expect social channels to be, you know, live and constant. interactive and constant. Yeah. So when we turn that into an instant response, that's what we expect um, and all of those conversations and information sharing comes out of, you know, yeah. that social, digital, instant place. Uh, so I think that's the main change yeah. is our expectations as, you know, community members yes. of those networks of what we expect mm-hmm. back. Um, and it is two way. It's a discussion. It's not just you pushing your message as a corporate app to me and I receiving it and digesting yeah. it. You're then expecting your response back from me, and I'm expecting expecting your response back from you. Yeah. Um, I think that's a big thing that's changed, and that presents a, a challenge for companies because speed is something that still needs to be approved. So, okay, yeah. I send a question to you, or I ask you something, and even though as the social media officer, I might know the answer to that, I've still got to get that line approved by someone. Oh, do that you? Public? Yeah, oh. in most cases. Yeah. Okay. Of course, I just didn't really think about it like that. Yeah. Okay. Well, you know. It's got to be accurate information. You can't delete a tweet. You can't take it back. I mean, physically, yeah, you can delete a tweet. But once it's out there, anyone can take a screenshot of it. So a good example of that is that intern for McDonald's that they did a tweet when they were, I don't know if they were let go or their time had ended and they they put out a tweet about Donald Trump's hands. (gasps) Don't know if you saw that. Like if you Google it, Google image search is just full of this tweet. Like, Wow. It's been deleted, but nothing's ever really deleted. Once yeah. it's there, it's there. So we need to be confident in the message that we're putting out. And that presents a challenge because we need to be speedy, but we also need to be accurate. Okay. And we need to be providing people with the right information in a timely manner. Mm-hmm. Um, and that presents a challenge. So what we might have had for a media, media approval process where a journalist might ring, ask some questions, we write a statement, we get that approved, send yeah. it to the press. There was probably a little bit more time there compared to what we need for social so they can't be the same approval guidelines we need to have a different process where we either empower our social media officer with accurate information and Mm -hmm. they can you know do a response that's conversational and timely yep 
um, or we have, you know, someone that's actually doing that role that has the authority to make that decision on their own and we empower and we trust them, uh, which for some organisations, that's that's a big step. Yeah, because it's, the, it's that, it. that control, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, yeah. Wow, like who, I, this is completely new for me and obviously uh, it's probably second nature for you, but that's when, when we're out there, we're expecting instant reply. Mm. It, it makes, as a consumer of anything, mm. it makes me have a better appreciation exactly, for yeah. that. And that leads me on to the next question about, okay, the time is of essence here. Mm. So I've heard um, people say about the golden hour yeah. <laughs> um, and, and not the, the original medical term of golden hour. Mm. But how does that, does that, is that still relevant in crisis comms right now? Because everything's so instant. Mm. I think in some cases it is, but yeah. I think in the digital point, it, it's, it's not. Um, an hour is too long. But what we need to do in that first hour is it doesn't mean that you can or you should be responding to everybody at once. Okay. That's it's almost, I would say, impossible to do that successfully. Yeah. Um, and that would take a lot of resources to go back to everybody individually. Yeah, of course. But what we need to do in that hour is we need to develop some kind of holding statement. Mm-hmm. So whether that's an initial tweet or where you're funneling information. Um, and even that's just to say, you know, we're dealing with such and such more information when we have it. Okay. Um, to set the tone. So I think the point is with digital is you need to be seen as an authoritative voice early. So it's a massive vacuum of conversation. And if you don't insert your piece in there, you're going to be left behind. So before the media would come to you for a line, they would give you time, a little bit of time at least, to develop that line and send it back to you. And then in their article, they would have people from, you know, the public, your line, their story, and it would all be in there together. Whereas now we've got to a stage where articles are full of tweets yeah. because that's what people see and they're using witness statements. And if you're not in that conversation, then you'll be just left behind. No one's going to wait for you anymore. Um, and it's really important if you're an organisation that holds authority and that's your patch to you're talking about, um, that it's so important that you're involved in that conversation, even if it is just at a holding line for the start. Uh, that's It's just so important. Okay, um, tips for newbies into the industry? Suggest joining networks. Okay. So even if they're a non-paid network, and I appreciate for students that's hard because for budgeting and stuff, uh, but there are networks, professional networks you can join that offer a student rate. Oh, okay. Um, so I think looking into your field and seeing what's available, um, not everything that is is paid for. There are networks out there that are free, like the one that we met at, for mm-hmm. example, yeah. um, that have great value and you can meet contacts. Um, but I think second to that is approaching people for internships. Oh, okay. um, so how I found out that I didn't want to work in the media industry and working as a journalist was by doing lots of different internships and having lots oh. of experiences and then deciding, I don't think this is this okay. is for me. My idea of what I thought of working as a TV journalist, now that I've done it for a bit, and I've done it for a year and I've really given it a really, really good go, I don't think it's for me. I don't think it's the happiness that I was searching oh, for. Oh, okay. And I only would have known that had I, or it would have taken me a lot longer to know that if I hadn't have also done lots of work experience and been okay. like, it's not just this station, it's not just this role. Of all of the internships and everything I've done, there seems to be a common theme here that there's a lot, a lot of pressure and I'm not really having the amount of time to give these stories and search for the information to the level and the accuracy that I would want and I feel comfortable with. Um, And that's a recurring theme here. 
So that's only by doing internships. And a lot of that involves doing free work and not being paid. So there are some industries where you'll be paid for a a work internship. I was never fortunate enough Mm. to be paid for the internships that I did. But I think that might depend industry to industry. Um, But I know at my company, for example, we've had work experience people come in Mm -hmm. um, that are students, final year students, or they're just starting out and they're thinking that maybe they want to change into this industry and we've offered them you know, one week, two week paid internships. Nice. So I don't think that it's not a thing that happens. It's just about probably joining networks and finding people or searching for people on LinkedIn and making connections. Yeah. And then if you think that this is the type of industry you want to work in and you think this is for me, then get an internship for a few weeks and have some real life experience to what okay. it is. Because I think working in an industry is very different to what we probably learn in the classroom at a university. Such a good point. Yeah, I think getting Such some real world point. experience and, you know, working with people at that company, asking them questions about how they got involved, you know, where their careers taken a turn or, you know, how did you end up here? And they might have, yeah. you know, like me, started in something slightly different and <laughs> turned into yeah. working, you know, in crisis simulations and, you know, presenting courses about digital crisis communications yeah. on a... A regular basis like yeah. I wouldn't if someone would have told me yeah. 10 years ago this is what you'll be doing you'll be living in the UK and, and doing this I I would have said you're laughing like I wouldn't have believed that because mm. I at that point in time I thought I was going to be a TV journalist for the rest of my life and now I can be happier that that's not the case but that's only right. by getting the Brexit vote mm-hmm. uh, and that presented I think at a time where for companies that was a really challenging time to be hiring people okay. um, and particularly because I'm not a European citizen yeah. and my working rights in the UK I was here for two years at that time I only had a two-year working visa um, so I probably did I reckon over 20 interviews Wow. So it was, it was a lot. It was constant. Like my full time job was constantly applying for work, constantly going through interview processes. Mm-hmm. And you and I will both know that it's not just about turning up to an interview and answering questions at the time. Yes. There's a lot of prep that of goes course, into an interview yeah. when you really, really want the job. Um, and I think for me, I'd, I'd come from a role where I had quite a bit of responsibility. Um, so by the time I left my time at the Queensland government, I was a senior press officer. I was writing, you know, all kinds of media statements and parliamentary speeches. Yeah. Um, I had quite a bit of responsibility and I was trusted to then come and be interviewing for roles that, if I'm honest, the pro- like the position description listed less responsibilities than I had as a grad. Right, okay. And to not Challenge. even be kind of looked at for that, it just really hit me quite hard. My confidence was at a bit of a low. Um, and then you start to think, like, am I actually good at this? Like, can I, can I write a press release? Like, am I, am I any good? Because how can I go through, you know, 15 to 20 of these interviews and, and get so close, be second, like, constantly, um, was a bit disheartening. Yeah, of course. So I think that was really hard. But okay. in a way, having that time, I realised how resilient I was as a person to kind okay. of, like, pick up and just keep going. There are going to be times in life that are challenging and things don't go your way. Yeah. And you might not realise at the time why that is, but for me, I think it basically I needed to learn how much I actually really wanted this. I yeah. really wanted to work in crisis management. I wanted okay. to do that as a full time role. Um, and as it plays out, you know, the job that I got in the end was the dream job, and I'm okay. I'm still here, even though yeah. I said I was only moving to the UK for two years. I'm still here three and a half years later, yeah. and I love it just as much as I did on day one. Okay. Um, so it was worth it in that yeah. way, but it meant keeping with it. 
keeping with it through the hard times and yeah, yeah. don't give up don't give up yeah. <laughs> and that's that, that's the key point yeah she's still with us and we're still glad she's still here <laughs> so and if she was if she'd given up then you'd be back in australia yeah and i'd probably still be very happy you would yeah i wouldn't have had the experiences and having the job i have now um and as i said before if you would have told me that this is where i would be 10 years ago i would couldn't dream that that would be my life so my favorite book is this is going to hurt by adam k okay um and you may have heard of it because it's it's getting a lot of traction now and i listened to a podcast with adam the other day oh. um, and talking about it um and the reason why i like it is i find it quite entertaining so i would highly recommend that you give it a read um but it is basically off his notes and diary entries as a junior doctor wow it's now put into a book and he's left the medical field but he's gone back and gone through all of his diary entries and has turned it into a book. Wow. Um, and I suppose with my crisis hat on, yep. the reason why I quite like it is I always say in my courses um, that you should keep a diary in instant response. Mm -hmm. um, and that's because after it's all over and it's been really, really busy and you reflect on it in a couple of years, you'll say to me, it was a really, really busy time. It was really intense. Um, but it was good. We got there in the end. And yeah. It, yeah, it was great. But actually, mm. we're not unpicking the frustrating days, the things that didn't work, yeah. the things that worked really well, the things we would make sure we did again. It all just gets lost in, yeah. in noise unless we write it down. Mm. So not saying that we should always write it down so it becomes, you know, a award-winning Sunday <laughs> Times number one bestseller. It could, you know, <laughs> you know, next time Kate's on, you yeah, could be you could be, you could be reading my diary. You could, yeah, um, could, yeah. So for my first incident response, I didn't keep a diary, and I really, really wish I did because oh, okay. um, the second one I worked on, I did, oh. and I still have those notes, and I read over those days where I felt really frustrated, and you know what made me frustrated, and the things that I loved. So wow. I worked with some amazing people um, that things they did really, really well. And I made note of that. And I look, read over that time and I think that's really great for me personally and professionally. Mm. Um, it doesn't always need to make an amazing book, but it is really important for us. If someone was to put me on the stand, or not just me, but anyone working on an incident response in four years' time and ask you why you made a decision on a certain day, yeah, I guarantee you're probably not going to be able to record it unless you got something down where you could refer back to those notes to really refresh the frame of mind you were in yeah um and i'm sure that is why doctors keep such good notes is because it's so busy and how are yeah, you ever going to remember true. that train of thought yeah um and it might make a great book but it might also help you one day if you were on the stand um or interviewing for another role and having to explain why you made a yeah. decision at a certain time um, so I'd highly recommend it. It's very, very entertaining as a book. Okay. Um, so, yeah. But it will make you realise reason why keeping a diary is really important. Okay. And remind the viewers what the book is again. Um, this is going to hurt by Adam Kay. Get it. Um, I think I might get a copy. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I'd highly recommend it. Interesting. A different, a different twist on yeah. uh, on a read. So that's really good. Really Thank good. You. You're welcome. Yeah, guys. If you've read this book. Um, <laughs> Do leave me a comment and leave Kate a comment because yeah, oh, we, we want to see if anyone likes it. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, so let's do that. Contact me um, and let me know. Your so if we if we want to know more, because mm -hmm. uh, there's millions of things that you can learn from this amazing woman. <laughs> where can our where can our Resilience Pod viewers find you? Um, I'm on LinkedIn. LinkedIn. So free to connect. Okay. Add me. 
um, and send any questions through. That's fine. Happy okay. to happy to answer. Okay. Um, and I'm also on Twitter as well um, okay. at Kate underscore Rollins underscore. It's got lots of articles published on LinkedIn too. So if you yeah. find her, you've got her in one one place. Yeah, oh, absolutely. <laughs> but Kate is flicking through the mood book to see how she is feeling now after all the questions we've asked her. Uh, I, for one, am feeling really inspired, and I have definitely learned some interesting things and i love the book recommendation by the way so and all the tips for the newbies it's, it's a must and i actually wish i'd done that um, an intention yeah or, or something to get into the realities of of work so that's really inspiring so Great. thank you for that so now kate i think she's chosen her picture of the mood book and yep. chosen and how are you feeling now after the i'm feeling quite chipper okay yeah <laughs> i feel like it's been a it's been a great day of reflecting and talking about things and in, in a in a positive way yeah. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm feeling really excited. This has put a spring in my step for the rest of the day. Oh, so yeah, thank you. Chipper, for sure. Kate is being chipper. Yay. Thank you so much for taking the time and coming on the Resilience Pod. Thank you for having um, me. You're welcome. Guys, who knows? Next time she's on, she'll probably bring her best-selling book. So I'm really <laughs> looking forward to that that day. So we'll have to get her back on for more for more thoughts. And maybe you'll be able to share your diary moments with us. Maybe. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. So stay tuned, guys. <laughs> Until next time. <laughs> Bye. Bye.